Hello and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and with my good friend Connor McNamara-Stratton, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare minute of your time, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And you can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn, and Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a website, closetalking.com, where you can find all the past episodes of the show, and Cardboard Box Productions has just launched a newsletter, Unboxed, and if you go to cardboardboxproductionsinc.com, you can subscribe for more behind-the-scenes stuff on Close Talking and all of the other literary and cultural history podcasts that Cardboard Box Productions makes. On with the show. Let's talk about John Batman Brown. Big JB. All right. Hello and welcome to this all new episode of Close Talking. I am your co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And I am your other co-host, Connor McNamara Stratton. And we are here to read a poem, talk about it, and read it again. And as always, we've got a great one, though not really a one, kind of a part of one and like a really, really, really small part of one, even though it's kind of long for what we normally do on the podcast. (laughs) It's existing in all kinds of fun, contradictory spaces. Um, We have an excerpt from the epic length poem, John Brown's Body by the man with two first names, Stephen Vincent Benet. Um, Woo woo. woo -woo. Uh, Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, well, I don't know if it was his middle name or if it was another part of his first name, but both Stephen and Vincent are first names. Um, Look, I don't know if I ever showed you my my outline of an idea for a movie that wasn't really anything that I came up with in high school, the title of which was The Man with Three First Names. (laughs) it was gonna be the third in a trilogy and i think i only really wrote the first one and it was just complete and utter madness that's a pretty fun name though um thank you i would watch that yeah his name was iman stephen george (laughs) that was the man with three first names i love it was it kind of like an inspector clouseau type type vibe it was more of like a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy kind of vibe, uh, which amazingly enough is what I had just finished reading all of, all huh. of those books. And then I wrote, it was sort of like Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy meets all the president's men, but not really. They mm. just end up in DC at one point <laughs> <laughs> after getting chased there on motorcycles or something. It was complete and utter madness. Um, a little bit of like a sprinkling of Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency as well. All of this began because uh, I had an idea that there was like this buddy cop scenario mm-hmm. and the guy 
was like, I always work alone. And then the woman who he's going to be partnered with was like, yeah, well, now you work alone with me. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, all right, I'm going to write a movie for that line. And then it was like <laughs> 30 pages of, of wild stuff. Um, anyway, oh, that's very besides the point. <laughs> because, you know, Stephen Vincent Benet, he's got maybe one first name and a middle name and a last name. <laughs> But one of the whatever he's he's a, a major man of American letters, won the Pulitzer Prize for poetry in 1929 for the book John Brown's Body, of which we are going to read an excerpt. And we're going to talk about an excerpt from that. He was able to do this work because he got a Guggenheim Fellowship in 1926. So in case any of y'all have been reading about how prizes beget prizes in the poetry world, guess what? It's been going on for almost 100 years. Yep. And funny story that I didn't know till just recently. He had been, he, he wrote poetry, published a few collections in college and right after. And then he was making his, his day job, basically writing hack commercial fiction. It was both not quite enough to, you know, keep him going. And he didn't have any time to pursue his more literary adventures. And so he had to get that Guggenheim. Um, Got to get that Goog. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they all say, you know. <laughs> Got to get the Goog. Got to get the Goog. I'd love to get a Goog. Oh, man. It'd be great. Um, hey, Stephen Vincent can do it. Why not? Connor McNamara. So. <laughs> yes. I, I appreciate that he's got three names. This is a podcast where we love having three names. This is a very pro three name podcast. That yes. is very true. That is very true. Um, yeah. So the, the book length epic poem, John Brown's body is basically a poetic retelling of the civil war era and it takes as its starting point sort of the the 1850s, the mid to late 1850s. Um, John Brown, for any of you who don't know, or just like as a quick refresher, was a militant abolitionist and attempted to lead a uh, initiate and then lead a slave rebellion in Harper's Ferry, which is now in West Virginia, what was then Virginia. Those states actually split during the Civil War. Um, because West Virginia said no to slavery. Yeah. Yeah. West Virginia's progressive history. But John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry in 1859 came after years of, you know, ramped up tensions and legislation and Supreme Court decisions. So you have initially, obviously, there's the U.S. Constitution, which leaves unresolved the great, like, original sin of the country and the question of slavery. And then kind of tensions grow and then are somewhat tamped down through various compromises over the years. We don't need to go into huge detail about it, but I do think it's helpful both in kind of contextualizing why someone like John Brown might decide to go and raid Harper's Ferry and, you know, take these kind of extreme actions. Um, but also I think it's history that like plays into what Stephen Vincent Benet is talking about. And like, in 1820, there's famously the Missouri Compromise because uh, 
new states are getting added to the union and new territories are coming into the United States as it expands into the west of the continent, the Missouri Compromise basically just sets a line, a geographic line above which and below which there would or would not be slavery. This doesn't obviously, again, resolve the issue in any meaningful way. It just continues it. And then there are continued rising tensions all over the country. And so in 1850, you get the compromises of 1850. You also get the Fugitive Slave Act because more and more enslaved people are escaping to the North to seek freedom. And that attempts to make that even harder and to continue to deny personhood. You then have the Dred Scott decision a few years after that. You also have uh, the Dred Scott decision famously basically says that people as it in the state, the way that it states it is people of African descent um, cannot be citizens. And in fact, in response to that Supreme Court decision, John Brown wrote his own constitution. He wrote a provisional constitution and ordinances for the people of the United States that was like, uh, no slavery. And a, and a lot of other things, but it, it literally starts out with a couple of paragraphs about how slavery is really awful, and it specifically references um, a recent decision of the Supreme Court, which is the Dred Scott decision. And so that's like 1859, and then in, it, well, that's like 1858, I think, is when he wrote that, and then in 1859, he has his raid on Harper's Ferry. And so in this book-length poem, a lot of that history is discussed and uh, retold. And Stephen Vincent Binet talks about the difference between it being history and a poem. And we'll talk about all that going forward, but just as a little bit of scene setting, because we are reading only a very small excerpt, like we're reading maybe a page and a half and the whole thing is 300 and some pages, like 300 and more than 350 pages. And the part we're reading is right after the scene of John Brown's execution. This is sort of a dialogue between Binet and the spirit of John Brown or the ghost of John Brown in some way. The way that's represented on the page is that there are chunks that are just written out in text. And then there are uh, stanzas that are italicized in quotation marks. And those are the parts that are uh, sort of from John Brown's voice, there is one part that is offset and in quotation marks, and maybe that's John Brown singing, or maybe that is the two of the voices in unison, I don't really know, but that's the only part that is in any way not a clear dialogue. So we've never done this before. Normally, whoever selects the poem reads the poem, and then they read it again at the end. But since there are, in fact, two voices in this poem, we thought, hey, there's two of us. What if we both read it? And I said, oh, that's a darn great idea, Jack. <laughs> and I said, oh, gee, thanks. Good. <laughs> I'm glad you're on board because it'll make it much easier for everyone to understand what's happening. <laughs> um, yes, yeah, so we're going to be doing a little bit of theater. Ooh, a little bit of mm -hmm. readers here. This is also, I mean, it's worth noting that this work has been adapted into theatrical productions and into stage readings on quite a few different occasions over the last like 60, 70 years. Yes. 
even though it's existed for longer that's just kind of the theatrical life of it is the last 60 or 70 years shall we shall we dive on in let's do it all right so this is an excerpt from john brown's body by stephen vincent benet i will be reading the parts that are in stephen vincent benet's voice and connor will be reading the parts that are in the voice of of john brown or his spirit i am the ghost in john brown John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. He will not come again with foolish pikes and a pack of desperate boys to shadow the sun. He has gone back north. The slaves have forgotten his eyes. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. Already, the corpses changed under the stone, the strong flesh rotten, the bones dropping away. Cotton will grow next year in spite of the skull. Slaves will be slaves next year in spite of the bones. Nothing has changed, John Brown. Nothing has changed. There is a song in my bones. There is a song in my white bones. I hear no song. I hear only the blunt seeds growing secretly in the dark entrails of the preparate earth. The rustle of the cricket under the leaf the creaking of the cold wheel of the stars. Bind my white bones together, hollow them to skeleton pipes of music. When the wind blows from the budded spring, the song will blow. I hear no song. I hear only the roar of the spring fresh nets and the gushing voice of mountain brooks that overflow their banks, swollen with melting ice and crumbled earth. That is my song. It is made of water and wind. It marches on. No. John Brown's body lies a moldering, a moldering. My bones have been washed clean and God blows through them with a hollow sound. And God has shut his wildfire in my dead heart. I hear it now. Faint. Faint as the first droning flies of March, faint as the multitudinous tiny sigh of grasses underneath a windy scythe. It will grow stronger. It has grown stronger. It is marching on. It is a throbbing pulse, a pouring surf. It is the rainy gong of the spring sky echoing John Brown's body, John Brown's body. But still, it is not fierce. I find it still more sorrowful than fierce. You have not heard it yet. You have not heard the ghosts that walk in it, the shaking sound. Strong medicine, bitter medicine of the dead, I drink you now. I hear the unloosed thing, the anger of the ripe wheat, the ripened earth, sullenly quaking like a beaten drum from Kansas to Vermont. I hear the stamp of the ghost feet. I hear the ascending sea. Glory, glory, hallelujah, glory, glory, hallelujah, glory, glory, hallelujah. What is this agony of the marching dust? What are these years ground into hatchet blades? Ask the tide why it rises with the moon. My bones and I have risen like that tide and an immortal anguish 
plucks us up and will not hide us till our song is done. The phantom drum diminishes. The year rolls back. It is only winter still, not spring. The snow still flings its white on the new grave. Nothing has changed, John Brown. Nothing has changed. John Brown. This reading has been brought to you by the members of Close Talking. The Close Talking Boys at it again. Volunteer repertoire, repertory <laughs> band. So obviously this is like one tiny portion of a much larger work. And I think what I compare it to is like, there's those moments in novels that kind of take off. We've talked about it before um, a little bit, but like, this is a big moment in, in the poem. Like the, one of the, in any work titled John Brown's body, obviously the scene of that character, like the title character's death is going to be a big deal. And this that comes right after it is a pretty big uh, like exploration of the major themes that are at play during this era and kind of what thematically this poem wants to wrestle with. And like the way that this work has been kind of talked about. And if you get an older copy of it, it might be in newer ones. I don't know. I picked up an old used one recently, but the comparisons that made is like Shakespeare's histories. And this is like the poetic epic of America. Yeah. The, this felt like as a section from it, it would be interesting on its own. Cause I think it is, it's bracketed off um, by a line that comes right before the first words. And that line separates it from the scene of John Brown's execution. And then it ends at the end of the chapter that it is a part of. So it is kind of separated out as its own distinct thing. And it is doing a lot of stuff that does speak to the work as a whole, but is also kind of really tightly tied together. So I think it's not disingenuous to be uh, digging into this section of such a vast work, basically. Yeah, no, it's interesting because it's, you know, it's like, you know, Harper's Ferry happened before, you know, years before the Civil War started, you know, the speaker, the Benet speaker is like slaves will be slaves next year in spite of the bones, nothing has changed, John Brown, nothing has changed. And so there's a, the speakers like, you know, you did this violent act, and nothing's happened yet, basically. Um, and then you know, the, the voice of John Brown is kind of like, <laughs> just you wait. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I mean, it, and so it's an interesting kind of, um, I'm not sure where the the current history uh, kind of like play, puts John Brown and, and the historical role in the lead up to the um, Civil War. But um, in Benet's, I think in the overall book, it's very clearly tied together that like John Brown and Harper's Ferry was like one of the direct impetuses of, of the Civil War, basically, which is, you know, which this section is kind of like articulating. Yeah, it, all, it also reminds me of, um, gosh, is it is it the beginning of Hamlet that he sees the ghost? in the first act or is that king lear 
no, no. king lear he's dividing up his kingdom amongst his that's right right, right, right no right. you're hamlet's the ghost hamlet yeah ghost yeah, dad yeah. ghost dad ghost hamlet. dad ghost dad yeah um i don't know i just for some I'm, i mean maybe it's just because it's two ghosts and there's like also the like prophetic ghost vibe which i guess ghosts can kind of pull off they're well suited for that role <laughs> but then yeah it's it's really um you know kind of his case is like this song is everywhere now like it's in it's in the earth it's in the wind and the water can't get rid of that basically um, absolutely well and that's like one of the tensions i think that overhangs figures like john brown because he's you know very clear that the reason he's doing his violent acts is to end slavery and so the the tension is between the the methods and the fact that like we know he's right yeah <laughs> and and he does have a narrative about it and it's supposed to lead to the civil war and in fact the song that this is referencing it opens this little section opens with john brown's body lies a moldering in the grave like that's the song about john brown that was a union marching song. Like soldiers sang that as they marched. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. And it was very quickly adapted into what we now know, and it's maybe best known as the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Um, written by another abolitionist, Julia Ward Howe, who also is the originator of Contemporary Mother's Day. So that's fun. Hmm. Um, no, I think that that position, because there's partially there's the historical relevance, right? And like the historical through line of what did his actions do, but also symbolically, who did he become and what did he come to embody, particularly when this is a very crude way of putting it, but essentially ahead of his time in terms of taking arm, taking up arms to end slavery. Right. Like right. you, when, when you do then have the country torn apart in the civil war, it feels very natural that the soldiers in the union army would take up this song as a marching song because yeah, his, his truth is marching on. John Brown becomes this kind of figure person. And that is something that like in the immediate previous section of the poem like Benet kind of wrestles with and talks about John Brown as a man because there he's he becomes one of these figures that is part myth part human and trying to bridge that divide which you know I think there's quite a few American figures who fall into that I think Jesse James is one of them on the sort of social movement side I think the connection that I draw is to Joe Hill um, which is a very similar kind of story about, you know, this person who also ends up in song, visiting people as a ghost in the song, like the spirit of Joe Hill. Uh, I thought I saw Joe Hill last night. He tells me he never died because people are still organizing and, and working for workers' rights. And that's what he was about the same way that, you know, John Brown's body is moldering in the grave, but his truth is marching on. Well, I dreamed I saw Joe Hill. He can become an avatar for 
ongoing struggles for racial justice and you know all that kind of action um but i like that benet doesn't make it as simple as john brown was good even if he was right you know he he talks about like he had no gift for life like he was basically he was like good at dying he was good at fighting he was good at the thing that he became known for but he wasn't good at like being a person in society yeah like uh some men are pastured death turns back to pasture some are fire opals on that iron wrist some are the deep roots of wisdom not yet born john brown was none of these he was a stone a stone eroded to a cutting edge by obstinacy, failure, and cold prayers, discredited farmer, dubiously involved in lawsuit after lawsuit. Like he's not, you know, don't turn him into this angelic figure. That's definitely something that's being tangled with immediately before this passage comes. And I think you can feel that reticence in the parts that are in Benet's voice where he's resisting the idea even that like John Brown's spirit goes on and that his death had this kind of meaning like he eventually comes around to it but he needs to be pretty meaningfully convinced of it yeah no totally um yeah it reminds me oh there's so many it's such a deep complex text and also a topic yeah there's there's both the the actions the means justifying the ends kind of thing where which i think is is sort of constant maybe or continually being maybe relitigated a little bit with him but of course it, it's kind of like in contemporary discussions about like you know protesters being peaceful or nonviolent or like you know um like environmental activists like disrupting pipeline things um first obviously which often is not in the contemporary context is like, we have to talk about the violence that's <laughs> already happening, you know, just the, the, the immense horrific violence of, of slavery. Um, and before you can even, I think, begin to reckon with like, well, then what does one do? And then there's of course, like, is it effective versus is it ethical? Um, which are also, you know, two questions. And then, and then kind of, as you were, you were talking about like, there's then John Brown, the man who is his own sort of fraught person, even if he's known for, for this, this one thing. And there's, there's a great novel actually that I think came out in 2013, the good Lord bird um, by James McBride, which, which follows a um, enslaved kid who then kind of finds himself in <laughs> uh john brown's ragtag crew and uh is is kind of the protagonist narrator uh you know who i always found it a great kind of little ironic stroke that the kid always calls john brown basically his master <laughs> wow um because it's like on the one hand like i think he he, he frees the kid in a way, but then it's like, he's a kid and it's not like he could really go anywhere. So then he just like ends up being with John Brown and then he has to do like 
all the crazy stuff that John Brown does. <laughs> um, and, you know, they wind up in, in Harper's Ferry. It's a surprisingly funny book for, uh, and I think it actually was made into a miniseries, maybe. It um, was. I've been meaning to check out both of them. Yeah, the book is, I read the book. It's really, really good. I can't recommend it enough. It's also a great sort of recentering. You know, it's like, like John Brown was an abolition. He also was a white man. And like the, a lot of times, especially I think the more sort of mainstream you get discussions over the civil war and John Brown, it's like, you'd barely know that there were enslaved black people that were in fact, <laughs> a, you know, living their own lives, resisting, doing their own things, like trying to survive and more and get free, you know, and that also, you know, both had a agency that they used in certain ways and also like were the people who were enslaved, the, the evil was exacted on them. And the book kind of by, by kind of tracking John Brown, but through the perspective of this um, sort of young, uh, like formerly enslaved kid. It does like a good kind of recentering of, I think, that dynamic. Um, and it also was interesting because I, I'm, and I'm curious like what you think of it. Um, cause I was sort of reading cause, cause I hadn't actually, the nay in this book is like one of those things that when I learn about it, I'm like bewildered because like it won the Pulitzer prize. Right. And then it was like the best selling book of the late twenties. It yep. sold 130,000 copies in 1928 and 1929 that is the only poetry book in recent in recent recent memory that comes close as like citizen by claudia rankin um and i mean rupee carr's books rupee carr's books sure sure but like i was like but then i was like i have never i'd like not even really heard of <laughs> i'd heard of stephen vincent benet but i hadn't you know i didn't read him in college i didn't read him in high school i didn't read him in grad school um and yet it was like so popular at the time. And then I was sort of reading, I found this book that's this more academic book called John Brown Still Lives, America's Long Reckoning with Violence, uh, Equality and Change. And it's, it's by uh, Gilpin R. Blakesley. And so it has a chapter, it's kind of tracing the representations of John Brown through the, through the years. Um, and so there's a chapter on this book. Um, but what it was arguing, and I'm, I'm, you know, not necessarily saying that this is the case is that the, that Benet's book kind of uses John Brown and it's framing with the civil war as like this kind of traumatic, but necessary, maturation of the country of the United States, um, you know, into its, its, you know, adulthood or whatever. And at the time, both, you know, readers from the former Confederacy in the South and readers in the Union, both loved 
part of the reason why it was so popular is that both people uh, from, you know, both sides of the war loved the book. Um, and that in a way, this um, critic argues that it, the, the book itself by the end, you know, sort of absolves both sides in a way. And, um, and then in the process, like, marginalizes, you know, the experiences of black people in this whole process, um, which that part Benet actually like addresses in the poem itself, where he kind of there's a passage where he he's basically like, oh, black skinned epic, epic with the black spear. I cannot sing you having too white a heart. Uh, and yet someday a poet will rise to sing you. And actually, interestingly, Robert Haydn, um, who was a great black poet in the, the 20s and onward, had sort of explicitly been like, I'll be that poet <laughs> yep. and like wanted to to produce that that quote unquote black skinned epic. So it just it was interesting. And I, I love this passage, especially because it's it's a moment in the book where clearly the kind of hesitant speaker is unsettled out of that. Um, but I wanted to also bring him the, the kind of like put it in the larger context of the book that like, like there are elements where the South is kind of valorized. And, you know, there's, um, there's also like, which is typical of the time, but you know, just pretty bad caricatures of the few black characters that are in the book, you know, like, mammy type characters and and things like that so anyway i just threw a lot at you um and made several different points which do not all relate to each other but um well i, do, I think they are sort of interconnected because i think for anything to strike a really major popular chord it has to have elements that are at the very least open to particularly if it's going to be something like this about an event like the civil war it has to speak to both sides if it's going to be that popular and i do think that part of where that ends up you're so right is like this uh you know if you want to get highfalutin about it this hegelian notion of the you know the dialectical progression of history there was the thesis of the north the antithesis of the south and they con they had their war and the synthesis was the strengthened union afterwards we know that's not real. We know that's not true. But I do think that is a very popular narrative around the Civil War and around U.S. history and events within it, particularly around the use of violence. And there's some great work by Richard Slotkin, who's written a couple of books, one of which is called Regeneration Through Violence, which is about the frontier and the meaning of the idea of the frontier in the early United States. And a lot of it has to do with, and it kind of ties into some of the theories, uh, literary theories around like the hero's journey. You go out into the wilderness and you return changed. And this idea of, you know, the, the European man comes to the new world and through his interaction with the native population and the wilderness there returns this rugged vessel of a new kind of masculinity which is a myth that then filters through into uh, Westerns, which are essentially the most popular form of media throughout the 20th century, 
which again have now been supplanted by basically superhero films. But this narrative around the kind of quote unquote usefulness of violence or that there is something regenerative about the violent act. I think you can feel something of that in this poem and obviously in the story of of Brown himself. And I think that it is a narrative around violence and historical events that whether conscious or in most cases, I would say probably not, particularly in the United States, particularly white readers are primed to feel fits and feels right because there are so many stories that are all around us that are about that. You can think of not just Westerns, but like the idea that there is going to be some kind of horrific act that takes place that is so bad it justifies the hero taking violent acts in some form of revenge or justice. We could count hundreds of those stories. It's every superhero film. It's almost every Western. It's a bunch of movies that are neither of those things. About, <laughs> I mean, about rogue cops, about some guy whose family was killed by gangsters and now he runs around the city shooting people in Death Wish or in the Bob Odenkirk film Nobody or in Peppermint where it's a lady this time. The it's, family it, revenge story is. Yeah. And, and, and it doesn't, and again, like it doesn't just have to be revenge. It just has to be an act of violence or a situation that justifies violence. And that is in some ways at the root of the John Brown real world story and courses through this poem and what i i think part of why john brown remains such a, a it is such a different kind of version of that is because the horror he was fighting is so egregious that the violence however horrific does feel justified even from a contemporary lens and maybe even especially from a contemporary lens where you say, Oh my God, the nation was founded in 1776. How did it take 83 years for this guy to finally like start shooting yeah. people? And obviously there was abolitionist violence before Harper's Ferry, but like you can feel his rage from a contemporary perspective, even more so than many people could then which I think is, again, part of why the, the myth of John Brown grows. But, but you're right. I mean, this, you know, this work itself contains many of the flaws <laughs> in, its, in its telling. But I do think that, you know, the line that you pointed out where Benet has the self-awareness to know that he's not the right vessel for all of the stories here is an important one. You know, that kind of ties into contemporary conversations around allyship where, you know, silence is not necessarily allyship. It's it was really interesting to learn that um, it was so popular and that and the way that this this critic is it talks about it is that, you know, in the um, which I, which which is like a, di a kind of history that for some reason I feel it's like super interesting, which is like people in history, how they're thinking about history that's further back. It's like, oh, people in the 1920s, like so much closer to the Civil War and had lots of feelings about it. Um, 
And this critic is like, basically like white Americans ate this shit up because they were like, I need a resolution and a story and a narrative that like makes this thing that was so terrible make me feel <laughs> better. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, um, and like the, the 20s are an era of horrific violence against black people and continue like the the first moves towards what would become the civil rights movement happened in the late teens and early 20s spurred on by folks coming back from world war one and a bunch of the original kind of legal underpinnings and the the lawyers who would go on to teach folks like thurgood marshall like charles hamilton houston they're working during this period of time and this is the first period of those kind of attempts towards some kind of racial reckoning so that is probably also on a lot of folks minds at the time and this does seem like kind of a balm uh on on the you know white guilt or or white whatever was going on yeah yeah no because that's what's that's exactly because it's like you know on the one hand it's like the civil war did end but then on you know on the other hand as you're saying it's like there was still incredible anti-black violence lynchings jim crow into you know into the very present as we're all very uh aware of um and it's this interesting process that because it was both interesting that it was very popular and then also very interesting that i had basically not heard of it (laughs) um and for anyone who doesn't know i mean connor has a like degree in poetry (laughs) right right he's a master of poetry right i well yeah now i'm like exposed i'm now i'm risking my credentials being uh (laughs) no i don't think so i i just think like you know what do you what poems and poets do you learn about what what you know it's not there at all is is fascinating you know yeah because like you know we talked about um a william carlos williams poem that came in spring and all that was like shortly after this book and like you know t.s Eliot's the wasteland and like um you know we've talked about a number of poems from way before that and also from around that time and i do think that you know i'm sure that many people are who who are (laughs) masters of poetry are aware (laughs) of stephen vincent benet but i do think it's definitely i can say that it's it's notably less read and discussed and prominent than than many 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 other kinds of poetry and there's i feel like my sort of it's interesting because it's like because the other thing is like there's such an amnesia it's like this balm that then you forget and like i just keep thinking about that where it's like okay once once like white you know white americans like kind of read john brown's body wipe their hands of the civil war narrative it's like then it can be kind of forgotten in a way um to history and like generations of of folks don't need to you know aren't compelled or aren't kind of directed to read it if that makes sense um where and and like i don't know it just it it feels the weird thing and when we've definitely talked about this before but like it's this weird thing where there's like on the one hand 
relatively constant, <laughs> like anti-black violence throughout American history. It grows and ebbs in, in degrees, but not in category, I, I think. And then on the other hand, this kind of like in the white American consciousness, this kind of like uh, pretending like it's not there or that it's not a big deal or that it's justified. And then at certain points being like, oh, oh yeah, that's pretty bad. And then being like, okay, I need to, uh, you know, cleanse. It, it just like reminds me of kind of after the George Floyd uprisings last summer, the, the wave of, you know, kind of anti-racist books um, that became bestsellers, like enough white people were like, okay, I can't wipe this under the rug, but I don't really know what to do. And to just, it was, it was very interesting to see the immense popularity and then kind of disappearance of this book as like, oh, there, there have been probably so many texts and pieces of media and culture that have kind of like provided this sort of mass guilt cleansing sort of work in a way. And right. like, and, and what I think is really interesting is like, it's a very complex book. It's a com like, it's not a simple, it's not a simple narrative overall. And it doesn't take any of the specific pieces of history very simply. And that's part of its downfall. Cause it does, as you pointed out, sometimes give too much weight to, you know, in putting you in the shoes of someone from the Confederacy, it sometimes strays into perhaps an overly sympathetic portrayal. But the sum of it is a narrativization of a period of history that is very comfortable to a white reader. Even if it contains complexities, it ends up being this more comfortable narrative, which I also think is like an interesting tension. But you're so right. Yeah, just thinking about when it came out in relation to the Civil War, because like it came out basically 70 years after John Brown was executed, which means it's like 64, 65 years from the end of the Civil War. So that would be like a book coming out now about a major event in 1951, which is a while ago. Really, the probably the equivalent would be either some kind of major summative poetic work about the Vietnam era in a couple of years or about the civil rights movement in a couple of years. And there have been big historical works on both of those, but like the equivalent would be some major epic poem that build itself. And I think that this is also where it kind of strays into that, you know, major popularity and like the narrative around this book itself was really set up, I think, for a certain group of educated white folks to really, really get into it where it's like, oh yeah, it's like Shakespeare's histories. It's, it's doing for <laughs> America. Like it is the epic of America, the epic American poem that does for our new country, what Shakespeare did for the Henry's and whatever. And it's like, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> you know, and I think that that is probably a very powerful narrative for a lot of folks to be like, oh wow, this is the big hot new literary thing because you know, I this kind of crosses over into what anyone who's listened to this podcast, and obviously you know very well one of my continual fascinations, which is, you know, popular culture. Like, what was the highest grossing movie of 
X year. Well, it's not the movie that probably had the biggest artistic impact or even the one that people rewatch the most or consider the classic film from that year. Mm-hmm. Like the, the stuff that ends up, this is kind of getting to your point of like, this book never came up when you were in your poetry MFA. I mean, I bet a lot of folks who are in film school never watch the highest grossing film from 1955 or whatever, because there are important works, but they're not the ones that are like important to the field. So it is that kind of balance of, and it happens, I think, in some ways, most starkly in literature, where you have something like Moby Dick, especially something like Moby Dick, where like, nah. <laughs> like it was a weird whale book for a long time that eventually <laughs> got picked up and like it doesn't have anything to do with the quality of the work but the the place it holds in the canon is vastly out of step with how many people were reading it and thinking about it at the time it is always stark to be confronted with like whoa this was that popular um and it does get to exactly what you were talking about of if you want to think historically and particularly if you want to think about your own historical moment with some reflection i think thinking about how people from a certain time would be engaging with the world. What were they reading? What were they thinking about? What were they, you know, watching or listening to the fact that this book was a big deal in 1929. You're also right on the cusp of the great depression, which became a whole new set of crises that kind of between the great depression and world war two were the major events that drew focus finally away from the civil war i guess world war one as well but you know the the long overhang of of the civil war obviously like from the present day it's easy to see the dates written down and think 1860 is one thing and 1920 is another thing and 1940 is another thing and to not always be thinking about the fact that somebody who was born in you know 1900 they don't know that in 18 years or in 15 years there's going to be a world war they grow up hearing about the Civil War or they grow up reading about, you know, the Spanish-American War. I don't know. I, I found it very useful to place the dates up against what contemporary dates would be. I mean, it does it does speak to like the importance of na- narrativizing history and the importance of narrativizing nations and storytelling and all of these things is like right now is a very interesting time because I think we're at a moment when the U S's ideas and stories about itself are the most obviously full of, uh, duty. The, like the counter narratives are also gaining weight. Like, like a potential comparison point would be something like the 1619 project, a collection of essays and writings that do tell a different narrative about an historical event. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's such a good example. And then the the ire that that has caused among, you know, the right, um, you know, and this, this critic who I've been kind of using as my, uh, <laughs> my baseball bat, um, you know, it's, it's not just that. I mean, he, he also talks about how Benet captures um, aspects of John Brown that are some of the best renderings of John Brown that exist. Um, you know, like one of the, you provide such a good overview of the kind of like policies and tensions that were leading up to the civil war. 
Um, and like leading Kansas was very formative for John Brown, which yes. was like this God that I'm just like, what were the, these ideas that they had to come to a compromise were just like, I know hindsight is 2020, but like, Oh, let's let Kansas and then the other state decide if they want to be a slave state or a free state. And so then what happens is for like, there's just guerrilla warfare for five years or some shit. Yeah. So, I mean, just for, for clarity. So in, in 1854, the Kansas, no, 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 just you're entirely right. In 1854, the Kansas Nebraska act was put in place and it basically got rid of the Missouri compromise. And the Missouri compromise was setting a line above which states would be free and below which, or above which new territories would be free and below which new territories would be slave territories. The Kansas-Nebraska Act gets rid of that and instead puts in place this idea that territories themselves will decide whether they will be slave territories or free territories based by, uh, they they just, they decide by vote. Um, <laughs> that didn't go well. And it no. is another very, uh, that was one of the most important steps towards actual civil war, because again, as you're so right, it, it begins this cycle of escalating violence around the question of, of slavery. Yeah. And John Brown was, was there for some of it and much of it. And, you know, but Benet sort of talks about that in the poem and, and references, you know, all uh, Brown is, is thinking in the poem all night long. I staunch, a wound that ever bleeds afresh. Um, and the critics like it's a superlative description of the martyr's mindset during his final decade. You know, and there's another moment where Benet writes of Brown um, for 59 unsparing years, uh, Brown's kind of thinking thy grace hath worked apart to mold a man of iron tears with a bullet for a heart. You know, and there's there's other, you know, uh, Benet, I think, opens, he he begins the poem on a slave ship, I believe, um, sort of bearing human cargo to New England, you know, and, th- and in that way, which, you know, I mean, you hear debates now, I heard them all through the growing up, it's like, what was the Civil War about? Was it about slavery? <laughs> Or was it about states' rights? It's like, yeah, it was obviously about slavery. Yeah. Um, he doesn't but... start at a dinner table where people are like, oh, you heard about this states' rights stuff? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, he, he does very clearly figure that, um, you know, which, which was a bold move. It's interesting, the kind of dialogue format of, of the excerpt, too, is a very striking... It's actually something that, that Yeats does a lot um, in his poems and I'm sure is, is common elsewhere too. But it, it introduces like, you know, a lot of times we talk about the distance between the speaker and the, the poem itself or the poet and the speaker and all that. And um, the dialogue f- form is like another sort of way that to make that distance even more clear where like the speaker is trying to have his nice poem and then freaking ghost of John Brown's like, <laughs> no. I disagree. Uh, there's a song in my bones, okay? And I think that's very 
powerful. But that kind of like, you know, processing over time and with the sort of insistence of the, the ghost of John Brown is a very like, it's a powerful poetic move, I think, that, that has basically, it kind of moves into the dramatic conflict in a way uh, where, the, you know, you're, you know, we read, <laughs> we entered the theater and we read our two parts where it's like, um, in real time, the poem is starting and stopping and being interrupted by this ghostly voice and and that's that can be pretty powerful. Um, and I think it's doing a lot of work here, for sure. I had one other thing that I thought of while we were talking. I was mm -hmm. trying to think of like, what is any sort of comparison piece to this? And I was imagining what a contemporary one might look like, which could potentially be something like Malcolm X's body written a few years from now, or, or Martin Luther King's body written a few years from now, though certainly Martin Luther King is a less controversial figure. I feel like those are two figures who've been somewhat mythologized. But then I was thinking about, so this is a little different because there isn't the same time delay before it was written, but it is an incredibly popular and kind of enduringly popular on a large scale about a historical event. And that is John Hersey's Hiroshima. Hmm. And we are recording this on the anniversary of the, the bombing of Nagasaki. But that strikes me as something because like, it was an entire issue of the New Yorker in 1946. So like barely a year after those bombings, this like really serious reckoning with what they mean. And that is definitely telling a different kind of history. And it's, it hasn't been out of print since it came out in 1946. There are significant failings in this book, but some of what's really valuable is that it does actually provide these really uh, strong, historically grounded portraits of Brown and some of the other individuals um, who were who were, you know, living this history and and were major actors in it. Um, and I think that's part of what's so compelling about Hiroshima as a book is that it really can take a reader inside of one aspect of what's going on there. And I know it's considered kind of like new journalism and it's like, it's certainly an artistic or a literary version of events. These are all not quite the same in different ways, but the, the ones that I had that came to mind um, were like Hamilton, the musical. Yeah. Um, and these aren't like poems per se. Um, Hidden Figures, the movie that's about the um, black mathematicians who help with the space launch. Mm -hmm. um, there's a kind of in that, and there's a there's the kind of long. I mean, that movie was very fun uh, and great, but there's a that it, it plays into the long and often discussed problematic Hollywood tropes of like there being the the nice white guy kind of being the hero and sort of conflicted and you know does he like beat up a bathroom sign at one point there we have it no more colored restrooms no more white restrooms just plain old toilets <laughs> i think so yeah okay um, and, and being kind of the, the, the one who allows it all to happen, you know, even though of course the, 
the three black women who are the stars are the obvious protagonists, but there's like, and, and, you know, there's so many examples of this, like the green book. I, okay. Did you recently watch this? No, okay. I'm not going to make that mistake. However, <laughs> I've seen it. Well, what I discovered, <laughs> what I, what I learned about the movie green book this week, Uh-oh. funny, you should mention it. Uh Oh, there's a scene where, for a reason I cannot possibly fathom, Uh-oh. one of the main characters eats over 20 hot dogs. <laughs> He's in a hot dog eating contest for some kind of bet. I'm aware of the movie and what it's about. And this is two and a half to three minutes of it that have completely obliterated what i thought was happening in the movie because this man is just eating hot dogs <laughs> honest to god i don't remember that scene at all um, <laughs> maybe it's I, a deleted scene i don't know no, i it's, it's I all it of up. the movie i've seen it definitely other than happened it definitely happened um he does eat hot dogs can confirm at any rate i was thinking <laughs> There's a lot of these kind of movies uh, and, you know, it's notable, like, okay, so Hidden Figures came out in 2016 and then Green Book is set in like 1962. Um, There's also like even worse of a product is The Help, uh, which is set in 1963. That came out in the book came out in 09 and the movie was 11. So there might be something to this um, time difference. Uh, And I do think all those movies are kind of there, you know, because they are a lot, you know, they're taking the, the like racial conflict that was in the sixties and the civil rights movement and they do many things but one of the things which is what they've been criticized of doing is they make a white person like a hero and the white viewer can watch that and basically see themselves in that character and be like oh but i would have been one of the i would have been that person or like or maybe i was that person if depending on your age so it, it, it makes this, um, and the tidiness of the movie, of course, then is like, and then the sixties ended and, you know, we elected Barack Obama not a short time after. And obviously Trump has sort of upset the, the latest, although it might've been the first time it was explicitly called a post-racial era. Um, yes, probably. but like, no, uh, I'm sure somebody said that before. someone said it. Yeah, I there's got to have been somebody who was like, well, I think I mean, we know there were because that was even during the civil rights era. Everybody was like, but this isn't a problem now. Slavery is over. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. definitely. Um, No, you're definitely right. Well, I think that there are certain there are certain events that led them that lend themselves to those heroic narratives. So like a heroic white guy in the civil rights era, like, okay, perfect story. We got it. World War Two, a morally like that we can tell saving private ryan about world war ii but no well on the subject of movies obviously 10 years after this book comes out is gone with the wind which is to this day one of the 
highest grossing and most popular movies in history. So here's a thing I learned in this article. Yeah. Did he like help write it or something? Was Benet like on call? Mitchell read John Brown's body and said that basically it was her favorite poem and favorite book. She knows it more by heart than she does any other poetry. Wow. Um, and she's read an awful lot of poetry. That's what she said. The last thing which is that I learned in this, just because I found this article very interesting. He, after this book came out, he was, you know, obviously a sensation. Um, Benet then went on to do some screenwriting and um, made a movie for D.W. Griffith. Did he now? Who was the director of Birth of a Nation. Birth of a Nation, Hmm. yes. Uh, And um, basically, Benet wrote a screenplay called Abraham Lincoln. Vampire Hunter. (laughs) (laughs) I wish that would have been so awesome came out in 1930 according to this lincoln was a hardliner whose decision seemed nearly preordained throughout the film basically uh it's kindly it's okay i'll just read it the script juxtapose lincoln being offered the republican nomination because in the film he opposed secession with an imagined scene of Virginians reacting to the news of Brown's raid. In the latter, a group of well-to-do whites, including John Wilkes Booth, surround a slave played by a white actor in blackface, whom we learn Brown attempted to recruit. And then they like basically blame the enslaved person for it. Okay, that's not great. But anyway, the Mitchell thing is interesting. Um, that's I think fascinating. That they're definitely related in that way. Yeah, um, and you can feel the same impulse to do these kind of sweeping epic works about the antebellum into the Civil War era and aftermath because even today we can see the long-term repercussions of the Civil War and the way that the narratives around the civil war deeply influence the way that the country can think about and talk about on like a big national level, what kind of national debates, quote unquote, can we have? Where, where are the bounds of discourse set? And you see the influence of, uh, of the civil war era even now, because as I'm sure anybody who follows the news knows, one of the big tensions around removing Confederate monuments ends up looking at when they were erected and they all went up during the civil rights era, calling back to this civil war history and the history of the Confederacy. So yep. yeah, definitely, definitely interesting. Shall we read it again? I think we shall. So this is an excerpt from John Brown's body by Stephen Vincent Benet. 
I will be reading the parts that are in Stephen Vincent Benet's voice, and Connor will be reading the parts that are in the voice of of John Brown or his spirit. I am the ghost in John Brown. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. He will not come again with foolish pikes and a pack of desperate boys to shadow the sun. He has gone back north. The slaves have forgotten his eyes. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a moldering in the grave. Already, the corpses changed under the stone, the strong flesh rotten, the bones dropping away. Cotton will grow next year in spite of the skull. Slaves will be slaves next year in spite of the bones. Nothing has changed, John Brown. Nothing has changed. There is a song in my bones. There is a song in my white bones. I hear no song. I hear only the blunt seeds growing secretly in the dark entrails of the preparate earth. The rustle of the cricket under the leaf. The creaking of the cold wheel of the stars. Bind my white bones together. Hollow them to skeleton pipes of music. When the wind blows from the budded spring, the song will blow. I hear no song. I hear only the roar of the spring fresh nets and the gushing voice of mountain brooks that overflow their banks, swollen with melting ice and crumbled earth. That is my song. It is made of water and wind. It marches on. No. John Brown's body lies a moldering, a moldering. My bones have been washed clean and God blows through them with a hollow sound. And God has shut his wildfire in my dead heart. I hear it now. Faint. Faint as the first droning flies of March. Faint as the multitudinous tiny sigh of grasses underneath a windy scythe. It will grow stronger. It has grown stronger. It is marching on. It is a throbbing pulse, a pouring surf. It is the rainy gong of the spring sky echoing John Brown's body, John Brown's body. But still, it is not fierce. I find it still more sorrowful than fierce. You have not heard it yet. You have not heard the ghosts that walk in it, the shaking sound. Strong medicine, bitter medicine of the dead, I drink you now. I hear the unloosed thing, the anger of the ripe wheat, the ripened earth, sullenly quaking like a beaten drum from Kansas to Vermont. I hear the stamp of the ghost feet. I hear the ascending sea. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. What is this agony of the marching dust? What are these years ground into hatchet blades? Ask the tide why it rises with the moon. My bones and I have risen like that tide and an immortal anguish plucks us up and will not hide us till our song is done. The phantom drum diminishes. The year rolls back. It is only winter still, not spring. The snow still flings its white on the new grave. 
Nothing has changed, John Brown. Nothing has changed. John Brown. So, Connor. <laughs> so, Jack. What, uh, what have you been reading, watching, listening to? What wildly popular piece of media are you engaging with now <laughs> that will be forgotten in, in another 80 years? Oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. Well, hey, fun fact. We're farther away now from the publication of this book than this book was from John Brown's death. Whoa, weird. We're farther from the 90s than the 90s were from the 70s. Woo! Man, I don't like that. All yeah, right. I'm just going to freak your bean. No, Jack, I am, I am reading something. I uh, was turned on to it from my partner, Sarita. Um, she knows what's up. She does know what's up. One of the many things about Sarita is she knows what's up. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Um. The book is called Undrowned, and it's Black Feminist Lessons from Marine Mammals. It's that very, sounds really cool. It is so cool. I've only been, I've just started dipping my toes in. It's amazing. Basically, it's by Alexis Pauline Gums. Um, it's part of this, I guess it's called like an emer the emergent strategy series, um, which is based on, uh, and, and Adrian Marie Brown, who's, uh, fairly well known. Um, she wrote, I mean, I guess her seminal book is, uh, called emergent strategy. She's an organizer and activist, and this is kind of part of a series that is like sort of engaging with that topic. But at any rate, Alexis Pauline Gums is a poet, also a scholar, also an activist. And it's this kind of, um, it basically takes these observations about how different marine mammals are living to as, as kind of working metaphors for uh, activism and organizing um, and, you know, obviously very specifically, you know, from a black feminist lens. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's really, it's like a very short book. Um, and you can kind of, you know, each, each chapter kind of stands on its own. Um, but it's been a great kind of like, um, I don't know, as I'm sort of doing my own, like dipping into the world of activism a little bit more, um, but my brain is still poem brain most of the time. Um, it's a perfect like thing to to read and think about and like, you know, and also just under underlying it is like this kind of like, oh, capitalism and climate change is like wrecking everything and like including the oceans. Uh, uh, but, like yeah. marine mammals are like, they're feeling it and like they're dealing with it in in interesting ways so jack yes i have the same question for you what have you been reading what have you been watching listening to absorbing well 
mostly I've been reading, uh, you know, John Brown's body because I I'd never <laughs> yes. read it, but it was at a library book sale. And so I picked it up for a quarter and that paid off. Wow. Uh, big time. Yeah. So obviously I've been reading John Brown's body, which is a very long poem. So that's most of it. But at the very same library where I picked that up in their little basement book sale area, I also got two large books uh, one of which is called Native Universe Voices of Indian America, which was the inaugural book from the National Museum of the American Indian. Hmm. And similar, The Native Americans in Illustrated History, which was a companion book to the Turner Broadcasting presentation, The Native Americans Behind the Legends Beyond the Myths. Um, neither of which are like super deep explorations of any one faith tradition or history but they do provide a lot of overviews i'm sure i mean i'm reading these with the basic idea that like they're probably okay but not amazing they have been however hugely uh informative just in one of them there's a map that just puts all of the different locations of different tribes and communities over north south and central america and just looking at that and the hundreds and hundreds of communities is like such a valuable thing <laughs> to yeah. like see visually represented because um, it's something that you can kind of know intellectually, but to really see what that looks like totally. um, and to have those maps at my fingertips and to be spending time with them, I have found to be really, really good. And it's the same with any kind of overview book like those Um you know, you could get an illustrated history of something and it gives you, you know, a starting point basically, but I have found it to be a really good starting point. Um, and I, I do like that it is that they're both kind of overviews because you do feel like you're, you know, I've read more and less about certain tribes histories and certain regions histories living out in the Midwest. I know a lot more about the, you know, Chicago area and my dad and I traveled in the Western United States. So I know a lot more about that than I do anything about the Abenaki people here in Vermont. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. This is co-host Jack Rossner Munley. Just reminding you that there are a ton of ways that you can get in touch with us, and we love to hear from you. It's always great to know if you have a different reading of this poem or any of the other poems we've covered, or if there are any poems you wish we would cover in the future. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com, or the show and Connor and myself are all on Twitter. That's another great way to connect. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. Connor is at Connor M. Stratton, and the show is at Close Talking. You can also find us on Instagram at Close Talking Poetry, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. See you next time.